Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators. The hosts are Ava Thanheiser, me, Dusty Jones, and Joel Amadon. Today, we're talking with Dr. Angela Barlow, who is the Dean of the Graduate School and Professor of Mathematics Education at the University of Central Arkansas. We've asked Angela to talk with us today about her work in teaching math teachers as the editor-in-chief of the journal Mathematics Teacher Learning and Teaching PK-12, through published by the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. And also, Ava and Joel aren't here today, and so it's just going to be Angela and me, and it's going to be a great conversation. Welcome, Angela. Would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, just to start off with? First, Dusty, let me say thank you for having me on today. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you all. Yeah, so in terms of like my background, I am originally from Alabama. And so if I'm ever talking to someone and I reference home, I'm talking about Alabama. As an adult, we've lived in several different states. And so we, home is Alabama. And I grew up there never really thinking about living anywhere but Alabama. And so to say that graduate education and getting my PhD changed that is an understatement. And so have had the opportunity to work with teachers across the Southeast. And it's been, you know, a really cool experience. I do have two children. Lizzie is almost 26. And she's actually, she's a seventh grade math teacher right now, but she will be starting her PhD in math ed this fall. So super excited for her. <laughs> and my son is a freshman at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. He is currently in aerospace engineering. So he's working really hard to try to learn things in a virtual environment. But by those two pieces of information, you can deduce that I am an empty nester. And so there's a lot that comes with that that is a, a new area of exploration for me. So that's just a little bit about who I am. Cool. Well, how did you start in your process of teaching math teachers? Well, there's two occurrences that led me to get my PhD. One was when I received my first master's at graduation that day, my dad looked at me and he said, you know, you should get your PhD one day. And it was, you know, it's just a little seed that was planted. Four years later, which by that time I was married and had a baby that was less than a year old, my husband took a new job and we were moving. And so we had the choice of moving to Montgomery, Alabama, where I would have continued teaching or moving to Auburn, Alabama, and I could go back to school and get my doctorate. And so then that seed that my dad had planted, like bloomed, blossomed, full blown. That was not even a decision. That was we're moving to Auburn. Yeah. And so I found myself as a GTA teaching. At that time, Auburn was on the quarter system. So we had four methods classes for secondary pre-service math ed majors. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to teach all of those. I taught our, we had a programming class for those students that I taught and I did all the supervision. And so I found myself in that role of a mathematics teacher educator, even though A, I didn't really know what I was doing or how to do it well. And B, I didn't know that I was a mathematics teacher educator. Like to me, that was not a label I had given myself. I didn't know that that was a thing. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't until I went to this week-long NSF-funded workshop at Illinois State, right after I finished my degree, and it was at that meeting and they were all mathematics teacher educators. And somebody said, well, hey, have you heard of AMTE? And I said, no. And I wrote it down. And I think pretty soon after I got back home, I looked up AMTE. I probably joined it. 
And it was probably three years later, I went to the conference for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that was the year it was in Atlanta. And that was the moment when I said, oh my, I am a mathematics teacher educator. I have found my people. I have found a place where I can grow and get better at this. So, you know, I had, I loved working with the pre-service teachers, like as a GTA, loved it, loved those people. They are now Facebook friends of mine. They turned out okay. Even though I I didn't necessarily know what I was doing, they are okay. But yeah, so it was several years before I like owned this identity that I'm a mathematics teacher educator, Mm -hmm. simply because I didn't know that that was a thing. Right. So it really was just a couple of fortunate instances that put me on a path to discover that that's who I am and who I enjoy being. Before you started that, what level, what kind of school were you teaching at? The first year I taught, I was at a private school. Oddly Mm -hmm. enough, that year that I graduated in 92, it was very hard to find a math teacher job. Like I sent applications all over the state of Alabama Mm -hmm. and just no bites and wound up teaching at a small private school, 7th through 12th grade math, plus I had girls PE. Good times. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next year, I started teaching public school, and I taught a lot of ninth grade ninth graders who were taking, in one school, it was pre-algebra, in another school, it was general math. I taught a lot of Algebra 1 and geometry. I love teaching geometry. So my experience was, you know, that one year that had some seventh grade, but the rest of it was high school, which is why like later on when I found myself working with pre-service elementary teachers, you know, I started looking for opportunities to teach the lower grades Mm -hmm. and actually took a year the 2008-2009 school year, I got a, I had a course reduction at Ole Miss and taught third grade math to a local third grade class. I was Mm -hmm. their math teacher just to kind of make up for that lack of teaching everyday experience, you know, at the elementary level. And when I was teaching, testing wasn't a big thing, right? So we might have a test at the end of the year, but the accountability wasn't there. So that was another reason that I taught that year because those kids would be tested and having the, it's different when you're thinking about teaching and knowing you've got a test at the end of the year. Yeah. So, yeah. So most of my experience is at the high school level. When I first started teaching, there was a state test in Texas, but it wasn't as big a deal as the state mm-hmm. tests are now nationwide. Yeah. It's just a different thing. Students, our pre-service teachers now don't even know what that was like, you know? Right. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's, kind of, it's like, well, back in the 1900s, yeah, right. we did do this, you know? <laughs> well, and speaking of that and relating it to the next part that we're talking about, I remember looking at cool ideas in what was then the journal mathematics teacher and saying, oh, this is a neat idea. I think I'll try this out in my, you know, fourth period class. You know, is it mm-hmm. algebra two? Is it algebra one? Is it geometry? It doesn't matter. It's a great idea, you know? Right. Um, and uh, now there's a little bit different. Now, what standards does it address? So let me kind of use that talking about, you know, journal articles to, mm-hmm. to shift it to maybe one of the things that you're going to help us understand. So let's talk about writing articles for teachers. I know you've done this. And mm-hmm. so to think about your experience as an author, what's the best advice you received when you started trying to write articles for teachers? When I started writing, I don't know that I got any advice, I would say. But what I would say is that I had a mindset that this is something that it's like a competition, right? So, you know, getting something published is winning. 
And so if I put something in for consideration and they reject it, well, that just means I lost the battle, not the war. Okay. And now they've given me some information that's going to help me to do better in the next battle. Right. And uh -huh. so through persistence and listening to reviewer feedback, I could recraft manuscripts so that they would eventually get published. Mm -hmm. And so that I would say, again, not advice that anyone gave me, but instead just a mindset with how I approach that. And, you know, we've all gotten those rejection letters where, oh, reviewer two, God, they, you know, <laughs> right. reviewer did two, did you paper? even read the paper? <laughs> you know, and, and so you have to set that aside, like walk away from it, give it three good days and, and then come back to it and then begin to read it for, okay, what does this tell me that I need to make clear? What does this tell me that I need to focus on, et cetera. And so nearly all of my practitioner pieces, particularly those written in that first decade where I was doing these things, like there's a story behind each one where it was mm -hmm. rejected once, twice, three times before eventually you got that major revision. And, yeah. you know, and back then I called those foot in the door manuscripts. Like that's all I wanted was just my foot in the door mm -hmm. so that I could get some feedback and push this thing forward. And now I know to call those major revisions, but yeah. So it was more about just seeing it as a competition and being persistent about, I'm going to win this and this will yeah. be published and hanging in there. And I actually took that idea and turned it into an editorial last year. For MTLT, each month there's comments from the editors. I don't always write them. Sometimes the associate editors write those. But last February, I wrote one, and I don't remember the title, but there's a video add-on to it. And in it, I talk about thinking about a rejection letter as an invitation to try again, and this time with feedback. And so that is you know, what comes out of this mindset that I'm sharing is that that rejection letter, it's not that your ideas are bad and you should just go away. It's that you should try again. And now you have some feedback to guide you that maybe you didn't have before. So that's really what led me through those initial writing experiences. I really appreciate you sharing those experiences that you have been rejected because <laughs> we all have, but that's something yes. that necessarily we don't always talk about. Mm -hmm. I remember, I forget who it was, but I remember seeing on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, someone saying, you know, this, this manuscript finally was accepted. It was initially thought of 11 years ago, and mm -hmm. then it was sent here and rejected, sent here and rejected and sent here. Right. And we worked on it. And, you know, and those stories are really important. It's not just the, oh, great. You know, Angela Barlow writes wonderful things and, uh -huh. and you know, she just wakes up and three articles fall out, you know, and, and there we go, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but everything is, is that. So I, I like that idea of, uh, having that good mindset, you're just being persistent in that. What advice, I guess I'm going to ask you to put on your editor hat. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you give to someone who is writing an article for MTLT? There's several things that come to mind. I think first is to know your audience. And the audience for MTLT is different from talking about the membership of NCTM. So it's NCTM's journal, yes. When you talk about the membership, though, you've got pre-K-12 teachers, you have university folks, you've got researchers, practitioners, like there's just a, a really wide variety. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, NCTM has a wide variety of publications. MTLT, though, is specific to supporting the work of pre-K-12 teachers. So you have to be mindful of your audience when you're writing articles for MTLT. So 
then with that in mind, I encourage people to actually read NTLT. Mm-hmm. You know, that seems kind of common sense, but a lot of articles that get rejected, I end up saying this to the author. I encourage you to read several issues of MTLT. I encourage you to look for an article or two that may have a structure of it that you could emulate in your own writing, right? Because it is a different way of writing. I was actually talking with someone the other day. She had received a rejection letter and she's a researcher. She had written to the correct audience. So that was, you know, not an issue. Mm -hmm. But in the article, there were so many details. And what I realized from talking with her is that when we write a research article, we have to tell everything, like beginning to end, every detail, every, you know, everything that comes along. But when you're writing for a practitioner, all of the details are not necessarily needed. Like you have to get straight to the point, Mm -hmm. hook the reader. What's your purpose? You know, the purpose is to share this strategy or whatever it is. Demonstrate the strategy, use uh, student work, classroom video, classroom vignettes, whatever it is to show the effectiveness of that. And then wrap it up with a conclusion. That's very different from writing a research paper. So that practice of reading what's been published in MTLT helps you to begin to craft manuscripts in that way mm-hmm. where they're speaking to the practitioner and they're straight and, and to the point. Yeah. I was trying to think if there's anything else I would say, <laughs> you know, now that I've got an audience, what else would I say? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, those are uh, good. I'm, I'm just trying to, I wrote some notes really fast, but you know, know the audience that's really important. And you're right. It's not, we're trying to write to all NCTM members, but just, this particular audience, NCTM has other journals. Mathematics Teacher Educator is one of them, you know, there's a co-sponsor with AMTE, and that's for a different group of people, different group of readers than Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I really like the I- idea and advice, although it takes work, it takes time to read those articles, you know, mm-hmm. and see what the structure is, what the format is. They're not identical. I've read several articles. I- and so, but you get kind of a flavor of that maybe that's not the best word, but you get an idea of what the writing might look like for that. And then I'll just go through what, what I heard you say. You want to hook the reader. You want to identify the purpose of the article. You know, maybe it's a strategy for mm-hmm. teaching. Demonstrate that uh, strategy. Use student work to show the effectiveness or whatever mm-hmm. other measures you've got. And then a conclusion. Yep. So we're, it's, we're not writing a dissertation and we're not writing. Correct. We're also not writing just a, you know, here's a great idea that I haven't practiced. Is yes. that right? Yes, we so we do get some articles that are written in a tone of, you know, here's a task or a great problem. Mm-hmm. Here's what you could do with it. Here's what you should do with it. Those don't review very well. Mm-hmm. There are some that make it through to publication, but for the most part, they don't review well. What reviewers tend to respond favorably to is, here's what I did. Mm-hmm. Here's what my students said. If I did this again, here's, you know, here's what I learned from doing this. Yeah. So they want that experience because that gives one, it gives the practicing teacher a glimpse of what that looks like in practice. Mm-hmm. So they're not, you know, they're not blindly implementing it. They've got some ideas. And then two, it provides a little bit of evidence. Like if you claim students learned something from this task, well, you need to show some student work that provides evidence of what they learn. Mm-hmm. We're not at the rigor of like a JRME manuscript. We don't have to have, 
you know, a hundred students were surveyed and they all said this was great. Yeah. But, you know, some simple student samples that demonstrate what those students were thinking. Mm-hmm. And it really is about the student thinking much more so than the teacher thinking. Yeah. I'm thinking back to some manuscripts that I had submitted and to different journals, but teacher for teachers, especially, and me getting that feedback of, you know, how does this work with students? And I thought, mm-hmm. I keep getting this <laughs> I keep getting this comment. Maybe that's something I need to include. You know, it was like you said, it wasn't something that somebody told me, but it was some advice from the editors or the reviewers. Mm -hmm. And so I started, you know, maybe if I can include some work. And then I realized that's as I kind of learned who I am as a math teacher Mm -hmm. educator. Yeah, that's something I enjoy. And that's something I think that is helpful to uh, people who want to hear the story about what I'm, what I'm writing about. Right. Yeah. So what makes a good day as the editor of a journal? Well, I'd like to say it's a day where we accept a lot of great manuscripts. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not worried about, do we have enough in the pipeline? I, you know, I think for me, Dusty, a good day in general involves, like there's a couple of things that come to mind. One, a good day is going to be one where I walk away with a memorable story to tell. And I say memorable because I am middle-aged now, and one of my superpowers is forgetting. So it has to be memorable. I'm a storyteller. So, you know, I'm looking for material to use in my stories. So uh-huh. a good day is one where I walk away and I've got a good story to tell. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that in the 2008-2009 school year, I taught a third grade math class. And so one of the stories that I love to tell from that year, it was like in the spring of 2009. And these third graders are learning about fractions for the first time. Mm-hmm. Basically, what is a fraction? How do you represent it? If I have this fraction, what is the whole, you know, that kind of stuff. And so we had pattern blocks on the projector and I had pattern blocks showing one third and I had pattern blocks showing two six and they've labeled them one third and two six. And one of the students said, Dr. Barlow, those look like the same to me. And my eyes got real big and my face got very animated. And I said, man, did y'all hear that? So-and-so just said that those two look the same to him. I said, I'm going to tell y'all, we call those equivalent fractions. And we're not going to talk about that today in class because these are in the fourth grade curriculum and we're in third (laughs) grade. But how cool is that, that so-and-so is doing fourth grade math today? And so then we got back to the lesson. Mm -hmm. Well, when the lesson ended, the students all lined up to go out to recess. And the kid came over to me and he tugged on my dress. And I looked down and he said, Dr. Barlow, like just really serious concerned, Mm -hmm. Dr. Barlow, I don't even know if I'm going to make it to fourth grade. And I said, 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 man, I tell you what, mathematically, you're already there. Uh Uh-huh. And he smiled and he walked away. So, you know, that's a story. It's memorable. It sticks with me. It's a moment that, man, that was so, I was so proud for him, Uh how that was received with the class, what I got to say to him as a result of that. So that's just a wonderful story that sticks with you. Mm -hmm. But then I use that story with pre-service teachers, right? So there's always this moment where pre-service teachers are questioning, how do you teach math without telling everything? Mm -hmm. You know, and that is just a classic example of how you can situate students who are making sense of mathematics 
and that they begin to see things and they give you the, you know, what you need to be able to push their thinking forward. Yeah. So, you know, back to your original question, what makes a good day? A good day is when you walk away and have a memorable story mm-hmm. that you can tell. The other part to it, when I think about a good day is a good day involves a lot of laughter. Okay. Okay. And so, you know, if I'm laughing, it's probably because I've told a story that was either funny or the audience people listening were like, I can't believe she just said that (laughs) because I do have a pretty stern face. Like Uh when I'm, and I'm a Dean. So you're, the perception is you're like this. You're not only an editor, you're also a Dean. So, right. You know, so you, you gotta be pretty serious (laughs) in life. And so sometimes I tell a story and they just kind of laugh because I'm the one that told that story. There's also moments where I laugh because it's just really silly middle school kind of stuff, you know? Uh So you're sitting in a meeting and somebody's talking about duties and you're just, I'm like dying on the inside (laughs) because (laughs) they just said duties, you know? And and that to me is funny. And what I love about it is that if I can laugh about that, what that means is I'm surrounded by people where I can bring my true self to mm-hmm. to the table. Yeah. And I can be who I am and laugh about that and they're not going to judge me and they're going to laugh with me or at me and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But then also laughter comes into play through collaboration. And I think that's where either as an editor in chief or as a dean or as a mathematics teacher educator or you know whatever role I'm in, if I am collaborating with someone or a team of people and we're laughing not only are we have we brought ourselves our true selves to the table but we have also sparked creativity like laughter leads to creativity and creativity leads to a stronger product so when i look back and i see a day that i've had to laugh whether it's i've had the opportunity to laugh whether it's you know any of those kind of settings that's a good day because in general you're around people that you enjoy being around mm-hmm. and so even when i'm meeting with someone whose manuscript has been rejected. That's not like the best conversation to have about why, but I bring humor to the conversation because it builds a relationship that now that we can have honesty, we can have an honest and open conversation about how to improve on this work and push it forward. Same thing with difficult conversations with faculty or students Mm -hmm. or whomever. Humor is very important to me. And so laughing makes for a good day. That's great. So one of the things we want to do with this podcast is help people who are kind of starting out as mm-hmm. math teacher educators, give them kind of some places where they can get some ideas of where to go for resources. Online is a great place to look for resources. So do you have any suggestions of, of where you like to go online when you're looking for good ideas or resources to do whatever the work that right. you might do? Yeah, I think, you know, my go-to first of all is my professional organizations. Okay. So NCTM has lots of resources. NCSM has resources, AMT, you know, these different organizations put together resources for their members that, you know, it's typically been vetted. It's been tried out and it's been practiced and it's, you've got a pretty good chance that it's going to work for you as well, which is different from just an internet search, right? I mean, I learned early on, you could spend three hours on the internet and not find anything or find a thousand versions of the same thing. Right. And so it wasn't time well spent. So if I instead went to an organization's website, then I was more than likely going to find something that I could use and know that it would be fruitful, you know, 
towards meeting my goals. Outside of organizations, I've always enjoyed the material from that comes out of Math Solutions. Okay. So Marilyn Burns company, like they always have really great resources. I've also used the Illustrative Mathematics website, looking for tasks that tie to different standards and then using those with either students or pre-service teachers. So those are my main go-tos. That's great. I'll put these in the show notes so people can click on those websites if they want. That's that's really okay. helpful. One thing I like is we get kind of a, we ask different people this question and we start to hear the same sorts of things. That makes <laughs> me think, okay, these are, these are good. These are good places to go. What do you do for fun? How do you balance things out when you're not, you know, having your stern face, but still laughing with people in meetings. So. <laughs> what do I do for fun? So first of all, I think that the fun part is the reason you engage in the fun activity is to keep your sanity. So I don't have a goal of trying to balance my life. Like work bleeds into personal life. I'm the mom at the birthday party who's probably reading somebody's dissertation while the kids are swimming. You know, so okay. I, I don't, I've never had balance, all right. but I, I do have things that kind of distract me for a moment so that I maintain my sanity. So the first thing that comes to mind is Days for Our Lives. Okay. So I watch Days for Our Lives every day and have for a very long time. Is it um, the same old Sammy? Like I watched it decades yes. ago. Sammy's still there, you know. Yeah, she Stephano comes and goes. Stuff? <laughs> um, she, Sammy comes and goes. She's she there right now. now. You know, she is. Okay, yes. Yeah, all right, that makes sense. I need to get back into it. But see, these are people that I've grown up with. They have their lives are much worse than mine, right? Mm-hmm. Anything that happens to me is ten times worse in that little midwestern town of Salem. And so, but that gives me time, right, to yeah. step away from the world. So I watch Days for Our Lives every day, and I either watch it in the morning, like when I'm getting ready, mm-hmm. or if it's a long day and I come home and I like don't want to work on anything, I just watch it and kind of stare at it. So yeah. that's one. The second thing that I do and have done for a long time is follow SEC sports, okay. Southeastern Conference sports. I'm from an Auburn family. So of course, you know, I'm watching for Auburn football is a religion. I said, told y'all I was from Alabama. So I'm Auburn football all the way. And because I'm true Auburn, that means I have to hate Alabama. Okay. I mean, that's a given. And I've got, you know, a daughter that graduated from Tennessee. I've spent time at Ole Miss. My husband graduated from Ole Miss with a master's. So just a lot of connections that make watching SEC sports fun. That's another place where I kind of withdraw from the world and step into a different world and can forget the other. I've never been one to exercise. Like I was always too tied up doing stuff either for kids or for work. But now that I'm an empty nester, so that just means like in the last year, Mm -hmm. I've started jazzercising. Okay. So that is my other, what I do for fun piece. My colleague and I both are empty nesters. And about a year and a half ago, we said, okay, we're going to do something. And we settled on jazzercise. So four nights a week, unless we have something that prevents us from going, we go to jazzercise and we dance and we laugh and we shimmy and we (laughs) (laughs) have a lot of fun. But, you know, there's only been one night that I jazzercised and I was distracted by work. Uh Like it's a really great place to just let it go and, and not even worry about it. So that's important. Yeah, that's good. And it, it does help you maintain your sanity, I think. You know, it does. You, you can just it kinda, does. <laughs> you know, hang work stuff up and, you know, do this other stuff. Yeah, that's great. That's yeah. great. Well, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm all caught up on Days of Our Lives now, even though I haven't watched it since uh, <laughs> like 
2000, but. Well, they um, are notorious for bringing people back as same people coming back. And even after they killed them off, they bring them back. So, you know, it's all good. (laughs) Do you have anything that you'd like to promote, I guess, besides the MTLT journal for people to read and and, uh, write for that? A few things come to mind. One, last week I did a webinar for AMTE that was about writing for MTLT, guiding thoughts for mathematics teacher educators. So we, in that webinar, really drilled down to if your work is with pre-service or in-service teachers, how do you take that work and spin it Mm -hmm. so that you can publish an MTLT? So anyone who's listening and heard that statement and goes, oh, that's me. I would encourage you to go and watch. It's, you know, it was recorded, so it'll be yeah. made available. But there's some really good information in there specifically about pre-service and service teachers and how to write about that when the audience of the journal is the pre-K-12 teacher. Mm-hmm. So that I would think people would be interested in. We also are doing a webinar. NCTM is sponsoring a webinar on May 11th about how to turn your presentation into an MTLT article. So, you know, right now we're kicking off our, you know, virtual conferences, people are where it's heavy presentation time. And so then how do you take that presentation and turn it into a paper will be the focus of that webinar. And again, that's on May 11th, sponsored by NCTM. So it'll be on their website. I do have a session with the conference this year. It's one of the pre-recorded sessions, which right now I'm like, oh, thank goodness that thing's pre-recorded. We use Nearpod for it. And so I'm kind of interested to see how people respond to this presentation that's facilitated through Nearpod. But anyway, those sessions for NCTM's virtual conference will be available for 60 days. So, you know, interested people, I would encourage you to look up our presentation. It's on using iPads effectively using iPads in the elementary mathematics classroom. So that's something I'll promote. And then the other thing I'll share is that I did have an article that was published in the Mathematics Teacher Educator in February and recently sat down with Ava and talked about it along with my co-author, Natasha. So that podcast will be available on AMT's website soon. So that's great. Those are my shameless plugs for things happening right now. (laughs) Yeah. And you don't have to put any shame on it because I get to ask you. What do you have to promote? That's great. And I like the fact that a lot of these things are accessible to people, you know, online so they can access those. Okay. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful talking with you. Uh, You know, we've, people who don't know us don't know that we know each other outside of this podcast. Right. Catch up with you whenever I get a chance to. You're usually in a different state every time, living in a different state every time. Yeah. I do take advantage of opportunities. One day we will move home. One day I'll retire and we will move home to Alabama and and then I won't move again. And I may have one or two more moves left in me before that happens. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, my employer might have just heard that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you moved there. You know, you chose. I did. I did. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much. I've really, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, no, this was fun. I appreciate the opportunity. And thanks again to all you listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. Uh, Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We hope you're able to implement something you just heard and take an opportunity to interact with other math teacher educators. Speaking of interacting, what do you want to hear in upcoming podcasts and who do you want to hear from? You can let us know through the virtual suggestion box. Find it at the Contact Us page at teachingmathteachingpodcast.com or in the show notes for this episode. 